Welcome to the Real Clear Defense podcast, Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm here with David Craig, editor at Real Clear Defense. David, how are you doing today? Great. It's good to be here. In this episode, we are speaking with Greg Barker, director of the new documentary film Detainee 001 about John Walker Lynn, the American who joined the Taliban in the lead up to the 9-11 attacks. Captured by the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan, Lynn was present when a prisoner uprising led to a fierce battle with General Dostum's Northern Alliance forces, resulting in the deaths of hundreds of prisoners and ultimately the first American killed in combat in Afghanistan, a CIA officer named Johnny Mike Spann. Lynn's role in Spann's death his connection to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and his role as a political lightning rod at the beginning of the American war in Afghanistan continues to divide observers. To help make sense of it all, we are also joined by retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Mick Wagner. He served in Desert Storm, Somalia, Iraq, and Afghanistan, primarily as a military lawyer. He teaches the law of armed conflict at the Army Judge Advocate General School, and he was in charge of supervising Lynn's initial transfer out of Afghanistan. Greg Barker, Mick Wagner, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, John. So, Greg, let's start with you, uh, and then we will bring Mick Wagner into the story. How did you get involved with Lynn's story initially? Well, it was one of these stories that had been in my head for, for years. I actually, as it happened, was working for Frontline and 2002 and ended up meeting a lot of the uh, Green Berets who initially treated and, and debriefed uh, Lynn right after his capture, who are seen in the film, or ODA 595. It stuck in my head. Years later, I did a film about uh, the initial wave of the war in Afghanistan. And in the course of doing that, licensed a bunch of footage from uh, Robert Pelton, kind of a freelance journalist. After that film, I went back and just was looking through some footage and saw that amongst the material he had sent us, which was just a bunch of tapes that were then digitized, was this 30-minute interview with John Walker Lynn. And of course, I'd seen like clips of it, like everybody else, the news accounts, but I hadn't seen the whole thing. I just watched it. I was like, that's incredible. <laughs> and, then, um, and then had a conversation with Showtime. And as it happened, the exec there was also long, had a long-time fascination with the uh, with um, with Lind, and in fact had was had been a producer for ABC News for Peter Jennings, and was researching a film about John Walker Lind in early two thousand two, which was then canceled because they then pivoted to to Iraq. So, anyways, this is long sort of, and we kind of thought, well, maybe by unpacking this one story, which is still a mystery, we can figure out something about the origins of this war and the war on terror and how we treat how the judicial systems responded to it and just see what happens. And it was a four-year journey, uh, four and a half years from the initial conversations um, until we released the film. Yeah, Pelton's a great character. He's he's phenomenal. Uh, the footage that he captured there, I, I, I certainly hadn't seen, you know, much at all of the shots of... Uh, of the battle at, yeah. at Kalala Jangi. Uh, David Craig, y- you watched the film. What was your reaction to it? Greg, thanks for being here. And Mick also, it, the film was really interesting because, you know, a lot of people want to think of people becoming radicalized as being kind of a linear thing. So you're, 
delving into John Walker Lynn really makes everyone see the gray areas that are involved and intertwined in between. Uh, So, you know, of course, I watched the documentary twice. I was struck by it. And one of the things that kind of was in there, and I'm glad you did the documentary this way, you kind of left it for the viewer to make their own decisions rather than lead them in one direction or the other. But what was interesting with him after sort of stepping back and looking at it was he sort of chose a specific path to sort of the really uh, the extreme radical part of Islam rather than truly pursuing an Islamic scholar path. Um, Can you speak to that? Look, I think trying to get in the head of John Walker Lynn, which I, we tried, who was, remember, an 18, 19-year-old kid who goes off on this spiritual quest, whatever you want to call it. I, I, did, I could not make sense of it in terms of like, I can understand how somebody from you know, the suburbs of Marin County wants to go off and I can get a lot of that. But then how do you then go from Yemen then to Pakistan, the tribal areas into Afghanistan, meet Osama bin Laden? I mean, at a certain point, maybe you're just in so deep that there's no way out. I have no idea. But again, this is the mind of a 18, 19, 20-year-old who was not a scholar. He was, he hadn't been to college, smart kid by all accounts, but but also made a series of unbelievably stupid um, mistakes. Um, and so was what was the intention that drew him there? I don't know. I'm not even sure that he knows. Um, so it was you know it was it you you could kind of go crazy trying to figure out what was in this in the end i thought you know what he's actually not that interesting of a figure to me he is he is um he's a kid who went on this journey but how we reacted to him uh and and what he came to represent in a lot of all aspects of that was far more interesting and in a way the film is kind of about that what he what he came to mean to us as opposed to trying to really understand his journey, which the best I, account I've, I've seen of it is actually a fictionalized account that John Ray, an author who's interviewed in the book, wrote in a book called Godsend, which he fictionalized. It's kind of roughly based on John's journey, but changed it completely. That, to me, came got to more of the truth about that journey than I could ever get by just taking a strict journalistic account. And just to be clear on the timeline, Lind goes to Yemen, ultimately to Pakistan, and ends up in Afghanistan. This is all prior to 9-11. Before 9-11. Yeah, he meets he meets bin Laden, I guess, the summer of 2001, as he's taken to this training, to an al-Qaeda training camp, and uh, meets bin Laden. And, you know, apparently, I mean, Mick would know some of this, too. I mean, he, bin Laden asks him if he wants to do any operations against the U.S. He says something, according to John, to the effect of no or not now or I'm here to fight the Northern Alliance. Who knows? And then is sent to a unit within the, the Taliban that's made up of foreign fighters, Arabs, Al-Qaeda, um, and ends up fighting with them. I don't think it's clear that he was a particularly good fighter, but he's kind of there by, by he obviously has no idea 9-11 is going to happen. And is then just this all happens prior to 9-11. And then he's there. But then he does sort of, you know, he's in the on the battlefield with these with these guys fighting fighting US troops for sure. I mean, to say he's on the battlefield when US troops are there, he's actually captured by the Northern Alliance. He's he's yeah. ar- he's already being detained. And then there's this 
uprising. It's not really a prison. It's really just where so General, Do- General Dostum is is holding the the detainees that they captured on the battlefield. Correct. Yes, that's right. It's really the death of Mike Spann that changes the stakes uh, completely. Talk about what was Spann uh, doing there? What was the CIA doing there? And kind of the circumstances of of Spann's death. So, so right. I mean, this is a known story. But after 9-11, the U.S. sends in a handful of, of Green Berets supplemented by an initial force of CIA officers who, who team up with various elements of the Northern Alliance and Karzai in the South. And, and they're on the ground um, as this working with U.S. air support as this very swift sort of battle and defeat of the Taliban unfolds. And it was in the course of like a month or so, six weeks. And so Mike Spann was attached to um, Dostum's team, um, worked very closely with the Green Berets of ODA 595, Mark Nooch, and his whole team who are seen in the film treating John Walker Lynn. And um, so, but by the time this all happens, the kind of the, 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 which is, you know, the, the war is basically over. Mazar-i Sharif has fallen. Karzai is about to be named the inter- interim president in the South. Bin Laden's on the run in Tora Bora. And then Dostum captures a whole bunch of people are surrendering, right? So he captures a whole bunch of prisoners, brings them to outside of Mazar-i Sharif, and they surrender. And then they put in this, they put in this, this medieval fortress and held there. And then some of them, and then are interrogated. Mike Spann is one of two CIA officers interrogating or questioning these these uh, these captors in a big open courtyard. So it's to kind of I think try to figure out who they have, and and one of them is John Lind, John Walker Lind, and then uh, but he doesn't really say anything in that encounter. And then the next day or so, or no, later that day, there's an uprising from the prisoners. The Tal- usually probably the Al Qaeda element within the Arab speaking element within those prisoners who. Who who have stored some weapons and some grenades, and they 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 try to break out and they kill a bunch of people, including John, including Mike Spam. So, you know, and then that leads to a several day battle uh, to, to retake that that, uh, that that fortress. I mean, John would have been a story even without that because an American found on the battlefield would have been a thing. But the fact that he, you know, was somehow tied to or you know there at the time that the, that the CIA officer was was killed just heightened the and certainly heightened the potential legal jeopardy because one of the initial charges was for perhaps complicity to to his death so you know so it made it just more visceral that whole telling i mean of of the battle for the the fortress is is really gripping a lot of uh, footage that i would never seen before you know you 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 nice. hear gary bernstein who's one of the, uh, the cia officers there you know you hear him on the phone and he's like we effed up you know at yeah that, that's that, that's mike tyson not gary gary oh, oh, gary's oh. in the film yeah yeah, oh, yeah mike tyson was the guy who was on the ground with yeah with uh john um, uh, with Spam. Yeah. 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 So they're, they're calling in help from, I guess they called Uzbek, uh, Uzbekistan or something. Um, but yeah, they called the embassy and then eventually tried to get some help, but it was, you know, they had to, they had right. to escape themselves. There was no help coming. David, did, what, what did you want to ask? You sort of alluded to it in there, but did you ever get any insight into how span 
didn't seem like he was trained for the interrogation and the, you know the questions uh the one thing that stood out to me was he didn't separate lynn from the population to interrogate him it's, <clears throat> there were definitely some mistakes made i think in the approach to lynn did, did you ever get any further insight into that what i would say is that i mean i agree with you right and most People who know how that should have been done would, would agree, I think. But, um, you know, they were, the agency was putting everybody in out front. And so regardless of background and training, so they just needed needed people. So, you know, this was not necessarily the most important place to be. So that was, that was Tora Bora, where they were cornering bin Laden and trying, so it wasn't, the war was kind of over. And so what Dawson's doing with some prisoners, yes, of course, they're interested, but it wasn't necessarily where the best people were. So the most trained people, not to disparage, you know, Span and Tyson, but it wasn't that, you know, Span was, uh, came out of the Marines. He was, he'd gone through the paramilitary school. So he was, he was not like a novice, but in terms of the, the, how you would interrogate a group that large, I think they were kind of, improvising and and uh, it wasn't a perfect situation operational so i'm you know mike tyson wouldn't speak to us i think he has given one interview to uh, mike morell uh, on a podcast which is interesting he sounds pretty haunted by what happened and uh you know i'm sure he relives that day all the time in the in the documentary you know an another instance where i'm glad you didn't intervene you kind of let the facts speak for themselves is the fact that Lynn had to have known the plot for the uprising because he's held with the Arabic speakers, which are most likely Al-Qaeda. And he um, speaks Arabic. Right. So he yeah. heard, I mean, he it's a, not a huge place. He had to have heard all the planning that went into place. And I guess that's the genesis of the beef that the Span family has with Lynn in all of this. Uh, absolutely. That, so. We make assumptions, right? So if you're just thinking about it. So they could be in a room. It wasn't large. It wasn't it was bigger than a closet. So is it possible that some guys were whispering in a corner that they're going to do this and nobody else heard? Yes, of course it's possible. Is there, is, was the government able to prove in a court of law that Lynn knew and was somehow complicit in, in, the, in the uprising that led to Span's death? I mean, those charges were all dropped. On the other hand, um, he spoke Arabic. He was one of them in some sense, uh, certainly not part of the inner circle, I can tell, as far as we know. But yeah, I mean, he knew that there were weapons and you could assume that, how could he not have known? So, and why, and then, and then why when he's interrogated by, by Tyson and Span, does he say nothing? That's, I think, the moment where it's, you kind of can zero in on, like if you wanted despite everything that led him to that moment, if he like really had misgivings or was wanted out, that was the moment. You know, maybe they didn't interrogate him in a sort of empathetic way. Who knows? But still, there's that opportunity to like, get me out of here. You guys need to watch out. No one else could hear him at the time. So he could have just whispered something to them. And they, so, but he didn't do any of that. He in fact said nothing. And I did, I don't think it's in the film, but I asked the FBI sort of uh, investigator who, 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 interrogated him whether he asked him about that and he did and span didn't say again just said nothing did not have an answer as to why so you can interpret that in all sorts of ways but if you're the span family you would say 
that was the moment, which is what Allison Spann's daughter says in the film. It's like, that's where he is. He, he lost the, that opportunity and that makes him complicit. So morally, perhaps legally, no, but still if we're trying to really understand what the, the kind of the deeper truth of what happened, he had an opportunity and he didn't take it. He stayed silent, which I think is pretty damning. In retrospect, he was kind of along for the ride for this whole thing. That's, I think. I think it almost seems like why you found him uninteresting. He, he wasn't overly passionate about what they were doing necessarily. This whole time, I think he wouldn't be. He's not. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't. You know, could he have been a soldier? Could he have become a terrorist? Maybe. Um, we don't know any of that. He just seemed. And if you're if you're the the senior guys on the ground there, the, whoever they were, Pakistani Arab, what? Are you going to think, oh, we want to rely on this John Walker Lynn kid? No, he'd be like, who's this kid? You know, I'm sure they were wondering about him all the time. And was he a spy? And, I, you know, from their perspective, he probably was kind of a nuisance, I, I would think. Um, so, but still, he was there and he chose to, to, in that moment, when he clearly, you know, look at how articulate he is in the interview with Pelton after he's been in that basement for six days and almost drowned and seen death all around him. He still has a presence of mind to, to tell Pelton, look, I don't want to be, I don't trust CNN. I don't want to, he's, he's articulate then. So before all that, he would have been, he, 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 he hadn't gone through all that trauma yet. Had he wanted to say something to those two CIA officers, he certainly could have. And, uh, and I think for me, that's where this, the kind of story uh, pivots for him. So let's try and get Mick Wagner in here. And I want to frame this a little bit because I think that a lot of the issues that the film gets at or provides some humanity for are the arguments that were happening at the time over what exactly to do with someone who's captured on the battlefield in this conflict. The, you know, it seems almost quaint to think about it in today's context, but to look back 20 years ago, there was a huge tension between treating people as enemy combatants and judging them under the rules of uh, the laws of war versus treating these as criminal investigations and ultimately trying to take people to trial. And if you're going to take someone to trial, how you interrogate, what rights they're afforded are, are really all crucial questions from the beginning of the chain of custody. So, Mick, tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, what you were responsible for, and how you came into or how Lind came into your life, uh, how you came into Lind's story. And in, in, in terms of thinking about that, about how was Lind being interrogated? How was he being treated? How was he being detained? Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks a lot, John. And uh, so I was the staff judge advocate, the lawyer for the first conventional unit to come into Afghanistan, the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit joined up uh, eventually with the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, North Carolina. And General Mattis and his staff of Task Force 58 came on top of us. So we came into Camp Rhino in uh, kind of the middle of Helmand Province, about what, about 60 Click southwest of Kandahar. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we're about, so we're just, you know, a couple, you know, maybe 20 miles off the ring road, um, west of Kandahar and in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it is, if you've been to 29 Palms or somewhere in training area, like in, at Fort Irwin, 
go outside of town and that's what it looked like. It was nothing. So we're out at this place, Camp Rhino, that was the initial staging place uh, for the Ranger raid that came in in October. And then so we came in right around Thanksgiving. I wasn't in the initial load. General Mattis said he didn't need a lawyer there. So I didn't come in until December 7th. Uh, actually, the day the Taliban quit, I was, I think I got there and they said that was enough, but no. Um, so they, so the Taliban had quote unquote surrendered, but we knew we had high value folks. We had Al Qaeda folks uh, that were probably in there somewhere. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do with them? So General Mattis told me, he goes, all right, you ever dealt with prisoners? And I said, well, actually, I had, General, in, in Desert Storm. So he said, all right, go, go make a camp outside of the, the walls here and we'll do, you know, we'll get something ready. But they never showed up. So then uh, they said, hey, we're getting, we're getting this uh, American. And I was like, what? I was like, okay. And so we got just a big Connex box that we had. And uh, uh, describe right- for the listeners what a Connex box is. You know those things that are stacking up in, in Los Angeles's port right now? Those are Connex boxes. Those steel boxes that go on ships and then you can go on trains and trucks and things. That is a Connex box. So, you know, it's about 40 foot by uh, 10 foot high and, uh, you know, maybe 10 foot wide or, or you know, something like that. So, uh, it's the one that falls on the bad guys in uh, Lethal Weapon 2. So, um but but it's Isn't also that, just kind of like a general purpose Lego block, like when very you're, much when, so. when you're and, on a military base, it's like, yeah. And they, they were ubiquitous in Iraq because they would use them as uh, we'd actually use them in Somalia as well as like st- uh, walls. We just built walls out of them because uh, they were so tall and easy to move around with a crane. So we put one of those right in the middle of the camp, Camp Rhino, and uh, that's where uh, we brought um, John Walker Lind into. So I was there, but also while we were there, there were eight to 10 journalists. And I was thinking today of the names and um, Tony Perry was the one I remember because he did some other stuff with us later. He was from the LA Times, but we had some, you know, I mean, it was kind of a big deal. We were the first conventional force in. Um, They want this, where's this all going? Everybody cares about this. And so it was kind of a big deal. So (laughs) when they found out, Johnny Walker Lind was about a hundred yards away from them. You could just see the Pulitzer spinning in their head. They were just going like, Oh my God, I got to get a hold of this guy. And so uh, the, the boss tells me, uh, not Mattis on this time, but Colonel Waldhauser, who was the mute commander, he says, Hey, go talk to the reporters. They got some questions. So I go over there and, um, we have a little bit of a, uh, kumbaya on why they can't go interview Johnny Walker Lind. And I tried to just give them kind of the, you know, Geneva 101 on we don't let people interview prisoners of war or EPWs or detainees. And I'll get to that distinction in a second. But uh, they were like, they, they were like uh, when a mom asks, you know, mom says no, they go ask dad. It's like, what if he wants to talk to us? It's like, no. Well, what if somebody else wants, what if his parents want to let us talk to him? It's like, no, no one's going to talk to this guy because we got to figure out everything, you know, who's who in the zoo. And we are not getting, I mean, about the only thing we're hearing from higher headquarters is don't call them POWs or, or EPWs. Enemy prisoner of war is what we use for, for their, when we capture them, and then our guys are POWs. So they said, don't call them that. So it's like, that's fine. We'll just call them detainees because that's what they're detained. And there's nothing wrong with giving them all of 
the rights incumbent in Geneva, except for, you know, returning after the conflict is over and some other things. So my guys, I wanted to make it as simple as possible for my MPs. It's like you treat them like you wanted, if you would want your guys to be treated and don't act like you're all hard and like Rambo, just treat, be smart. And I'm sure General Madison, Colonel Waldhauser grabbed him once or twice by, you know, the ear and said, don't F this up. Uh, so it was, you know, once we figure out he's an American, that's, that's kind of a different ball game, you know, versus Al Qaeda. And, you know, he had, he had some bad timing, man. Uh, I mean, I think you see Greg's, you know, uh, very close to whatever I've heard rendition of, of him. And it was like, Hey, moral of the story is don't be the first guy to get caught, you know, after 3000 Americans are killed, uh, cause it ain't going to go well for you, but that's, you know, how I got to uh, deal with him. And then when we were going to move him out to the Peleliu, my boss said, okay, I don't need you here anymore. I, I want to make sure this doesn't get jacked up on the ship. So you go out there and make sure this doesn't get jacked up on the ship. So I flew out a couple of days earlier and went to the ship and made sure we had everything squared away with our Navy uh, crew, but then also some of the Marine folks that were left on the ship that hadn't come into Rhino. So long, long answer to a short question, John. <laughs> I think it, it's no great surprise that sometimes commanders and their lawyers have some conflict over the challenges of squaring the war with the, you know, the mission with the law. Did you have any friction with Mattis? What was your relationship with Mattis like? Oh, I never had the greatest relationship with Mattis. Uh, just he, he wasn't a, a lawyer loving type of guy. Uh, but well, I love it. Cool. You, you start your story out with him saying, yeah, I don't need any lawyers when I, when I arrive. Oh yeah. Well, he didn't bring any with him. The only reason he had me was cause I was already there. And then it was like, okay, I guess we need a lawyer over here to look at the, you know, the ROE. But when I, when I, when I briefed the ROE to go into Afghanistan with this force, the first thing he said in the, in the, when he came up to talk was everything that guy he said, stand up Jag. So I, I stood up and he goes, everything that guy said is bullshit. <laughs> it's kind of like, and all my friends, you know, all my buddies looking at me like, Ooh, that's a shovel right in the face. And it was like, yeah, I kind of got bent by that, but I know what he was trying to do. And I talked to my guys and said, Hey, are we all good. They, yeah, we're all good. They, they knew, they knew raw, raw stuff, but no, he, he had no issue. He, he, he saw that one for everybody kind of saw that one for what it was. It's like, this guy is basically a Lance corporal in the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda. He's not, he's the same age as the guys guarding him. You, you know, he is not a strategic asset, uh, for, you know, probably anything. However, he's an American. So that makes him totally different and totally distinct. And so it's like, let's don't jack this up. Just do this, do the smart thing. Um, keep, you know, no games, no, no reindeer games, none of that stuff. And then we knew he was wounded. So it was like, okay, are we going to, are we going to set up the triage? Are we going to set up a, you know, a thing here? And I was like, you know, we've got this whole thing on the boat, a whole surgical team of dozens. On the Pelaloo, yeah. Send, send them back to the boat where the, the, the hygiene conditions are about a thousand percent better. We've got all the care, all our, you know, most of our docks are still back on there. Cause you know, we didn't know what we were flying into when we came in. I mean, we had an idea, but we didn't know for sure or how long the fight was going to be. So we had a lot of, you know, dry powder back on the ship and, and then we didn't need it. So I was like, okay, get this knucklehead back on the ship where he can be, you know, really the best 
Uh, I mean, that's what we would have done with any of our people was like, get them back to the ship. You only, you only deal with them on at Rhino. If you got to get the golden hour or, or, you know, just do very things. And, and his was a gunshot wound. So it wasn't, it wasn't something you laughed at, but it wasn't critical care, you know, golden, golden hour or golden five hour day, anything like that. It was like, okay, let's just move them smartly. Getting back to getting back to Greg's documentary, though, the image that the American public sees is John Walker Lind all taped up on the uh, stretcher. And I think even was one of the pictures with the Marines there, which led to the question. DOG DOJ folks are starting to get concerned that he's being and his lawyers, of course, think that he's being abused in captivity so can you walk us through that from when you received him on to when you got him onto the Pella loop? Yeah, I, I called my buddy before this interview. I said, hey, run me through a couple of things again. When he when he got here, he was taped up, right? He's like, yep, that's how we got him. So to, to defend the Marines of Rhino, you know, that's the sort of thing Madison Waldhauser were not going to let happen. Uh, that sort of jackassery. Uh, you know, the, whatever they knucklehead or whatever they wrote on his tape or traitor or something like that. I don't know it was. They wrote shit. Yeah. On his, there you go. Yeah. So that, that wasn't my guys. Cause they would have got, they would have been in trouble as well if they would have done such a thing. So he was in this Conax box. I went over to check on him one night and I had a couple guards just sitting out there. He was sitting on a cot. Um, we didn't have any good clothes for him and they'd taken all his nasty stuff that he'd been in the, I mean, just those conditions at, uh, in Mazar Shreve. Wow. But, um, but he had all the blankets he needed. So he, he was just kind of like, you know, uh, just, just chilling in there. So I asked the guys, I said, Hey, any problems? I'm like, no, he's pretty quiet. I said, okay. Um, nobody F's with this guy. You got it. And I go, yes, sir. We already got that. I said, all right, then you know the drill. And so that was, that was pretty much uh, what we had there. Um, what was the second part of that question? I just how, and maybe we can bring Greg in with that is, is to talk about the picture that, that David was referring to is, you know, Lind is on a stretcher. He's bound at the shoulders as well as at the hands. He's, he's stripped, which I, I'm, I like that you provide that context of part of that had to do with, um, the conditions that he was in prior to it. Greg, just talk about how the images coming out of Camp Rhino and, how the DOJ is starting to get involved in this question of, you know, he's asking for a lawyer. Uh, how should these interrogations be handled? Is he a detainee? Is he an enemy POW? Is he, uh, you know, essentially going to be tried in the civilian courts? Uh, talk about how those issues start to brew and how the 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 cultural impact of of what was coming out of Afghanistan was was affecting that battle in the press. Yeah, I mean that's it's really interesting to hear your account, Mick, and it's it's great to get this insight. It happened somewhere. The abuse, and it, it, so I talked to his lawyers in San Francisco at length about all this. They viewed it as physical abuse, not torture. Because there was no intention to it, and I don't know how long it lasted, but he he was, you know, it, it happened somewhere. We see in the footage that it it uh, the five nine five team essentially saves his life. Uh, of course, we don't see footage of the entire interaction with them. Their friend John Michael Spann had just been killed, so was there some something happened 
what he was in their custody in Mazari Sharif, we don't know. I know that within a 24 hours, he was transferred to a, a command unit with the Green Berets in, in, in Mazar and then sent to Camp Rhino. Now, one of the photos I have of abuse came from the personal archive of somebody with that command unit. So did it begin there? Maybe. At Camp Rhino, we know from Robert Pelton, who talked to some of the Marines later who were at Camp Rhino, who asked him to come out to, to speak to them at Camp Pendleton, that there were some trophy photos taken, I'm pretty sure, at Camp Rhino um, with the soldiers, and you can see their faces, and, and Lynn. Where did that happen? Then he was transferred to the, the, the ship. I heard from somebody who was there that, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's uh, it's uh, that that Tommy Franks flew out to the ship and yelled at John Lynn for an hour just to yell at him. So I don't know. Um, but somewhere along the line, the abuse happened. It happened. There's photographs documenting it. I could never get anybody to talk about it um, to and to to sort of really unpack it. Nobody wanted those truths revealed. This is one reason that that the, there was a plea bargain in the end, and also. Bear in mind, he was kept for 55 days before seeing a U.S. Uh, b- before being brought into U.S. custody in the United States and entering the legal system. That's a long time. Um, his wounds were not such that he couldn't have just been flown back to Germany into the states. It's a long time. So, so the around this time at Camp Rhino, I believe, is where the FBI interrogates him. John himself has not asked for a lawyer at the time. Uh, his parents have hired a lawyer in San Francisco who said, who very prominent human rights lawyer who says, I'm John Walker Lynn's lawyer. But that's coming from the parents, not from John. So he does not, he want, he, as far as we know, voluntarily talks to the FBI and, and uh, at Camp Rhino. So, so, you know, now at the same time, the Justice Department, later we found out through a whistleblower, is saying there's an ethics department of the Justice Department. Just like Raddick, right? right? Yeah. Raddick. She's saying you can't interrogate interrogate this guy without a lawyer present, but it happens anyway. And uh, and so it's it's complicated. It's complicated. And all of these sort of this murky sort of backstory is what I've felt felt in the end. Nobody really wanted to unpack. Nobody wanted to unpack. Nobody wanted just the, the military and the Cheney's office and DOJ did not want to put U.S. on the stand. Uh, and ask them exactly these questions about when did this abuse actually take place? They didn't want that to happen. And uh, the Justice Department did not want to have somebody on the stand saying, we advise against the FBI even being there. Um, and John's lawyers did not want him on the stand either um, because you know, he met bin Laden and all of that. And so it was, it was, it was this, this kind of confluence of, of um, interest that led to a a last minute plea bargain just literally hours before the first um, discovery hearing when a lot of these key players, including Mark Nooch and Robert Pelton, were all gathered in Northern Virginia at a hotel ready to testify and wanting to testify. At the last minute, everything goes away and charges dropped. And then suddenly John sent away for, for 17 years. It's very interesting, but it's, it's kind of there was there was abuse. There's no question about there was there was abuse. That happened while he was in U.S. custody somewhere along the way. Where that came from, I can have theories, 
but nothing that we could prove. Mick, you were getting ready to testify at, at that hearing, correct? Yes, I uh, Well, you were there too. Okay. Wow. No, I wasn't. No. It, I wasn't in the courthouse. I was oh. at Camp Pendleton and I, my ticket okay. was in my hand. I was leaving that afternoon. I'd canceled a family trip. And uh, I think there was about five of us that were going up. A couple of the MPs, uh-huh. I think Mattis was called. And uh-huh. we were all set to go. My wife calls me up on you know, California Times and says, hey, uh, you ain't going. I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, you just bled out. I was like, oh, okay. So that that ended my uh, relatively brief off, you know, chance to for any, you know, glory or or ignominy uh, yeah. from that case. But I will tell you, his lawyers did interview all of us at Camp Pendleton. Uh, there was two of them: his his head guy and one of his uh, other ones. I'll be honest. Um, I mean, I I read about I, I checked on these guys before I was going to visit them, and you know, impressed with their their uh, civilian credentials. They didn't have one person who knew anything about the law of war on their team that talked to us or me or anyone. So I thought that was a real Delta, uh, Greg, as far as if they were, if they were hot to trot and I'm sure they are, you know, they have nice houses and nice cars because they're good lawyers. I know that, but they, their team wasn't, you know, I didn't think they had the best team that would have fully given them a 360 of, the law of war and how they could have gone in and made some of those questions. That's a true the FBI, the FBI was there at, at Rhino. And once he was there, I was like, we are out. We are not doing anything with criminal stuff. Marines period. This is the FBI. Now, when it came to interrogation, we didn't really have a whole lot for, for uh, Walker Lind that we really needed. I mean, once again, he's a 19 year old, it was, yeah. he was in his, he was in his whole world. In addition to him, we had, I think, seven HVTs on Peleliu that came in a different day. They, uh, of course, the FBI and everybody wanted to, or not the FBI, but NCIS wanted to talk to them. And that's where I had a little more play. And I said, no. I said, are you an interrogator NCIS? Are you an Intel NCIS? Or are you a criminal? Because they have both functions. And they said, well, I'm criminal. I said, you ain't talking to him. Because I know a statute of limitations just like anybody else. And we had years before we had to come up with a charge for these guys, if we could come up with one, because we identify, everybody identified that pretty soon as, I mean, we're two months past 9-11. They, they finally, you know, they passed the AUMF and everything, but we're still like, hey, what's the crime exactly? Uh, material aid to terrorism for some things like uh, that we could go after like death of uh, uh, officer span, but if there were other things that was very problematic and we all saw it coming down the pipe, but it was like, Hey, your criminal liability, we've got plenty of time to get you to in front of a judge. Uh, the Intel you have is getting staler every day. So if they want to talk to them, go ahead within the bounds of, you know, how we would, you know, at the time, the, uh, you know, none of that crazy Abu Ghraib sort of jackassery that happened later. Ours was very straight up human intelligence, uh, so, uh, human interrogation, human sort of training and uh, questioning. Getting back to what Greg said, though, do you suspect that the abuse that happened with Lynn probably happened before you even got him at Rhino? I mean, it seems like that would be the logical assumption based on. <laughs> the condition he was in when you got him, not just 
I mean, the, him being taped up with shithead written on him. Yeah, that I mean, it's pretty self-serving for me to say the guys before me had it. You know, was there probably some some uh, war photos taken? Yeah. And I will tell you that when he came onto the ship, it was like a red carpet because the ship was trying to document something it had never done before. So there was a lot of flash photography because it came in at night. There was a lot of flash photography and there was probably more people than needed to be up on the on the flight near the flight deck when he came in. But and he was secured on that cot as he came in. I mean, in an abundance of caution, was it probably a little more than they needed? Probably. But, hey, they don't know what he's going to do on an aircraft. You know, if he's going to get up and try and strike somebody, you know, you, you don't usually mm-hmm. like to take enemy combatants on, on airplanes that aren't bound up, at least. So he came onto the ship and he, was, he didn't have that shithead stupid stuff, but he, had, he was bound uh, onto that cot or stretcher. And then we had to take him down the ship. So you got to do that as well. And his legs hurt. So he's not, he's not really ambulatory. So, um, you know, we're moving him downstairs. So that probably seemed a little, um, maybe a little over the top for some people looking at it. I'll tell you, I never heard from DOJ one, one link, except for when the prosecutors got a hold of us and they talked to us and they ran us through the, the, the things too, like, Hey, tell us the bad stuff. And, you know, we didn't really have any, and they're like, okay. And so, I, I was all about that suppression. I mean, you saw that suppression motion coming about torture. I was like, I can tell you what we did. And that's all I can tell you. And, and what can you say about the FBI interrogation? Are you able to talk about that at all? What he was I, I wasn't there. I, I wasn't okay. there with him. And uh, they didn't share any of that information with you of what they got from him? No. They, they did supposedly read him as Miranda rights. And, that's what I was told. Yeah. That's what I was told because... He was an American and it was like, okay, FBI American automatically, you just revert to form and you go to Mirandais. And honestly, um, you guys remember, uh, uh, an American, a born American named Hamdi. Yeah. You know why Hamdi went back to Saudi Arabia and Walker Lynn went to prison for 18 years is because Walker Lynn talked after he was Mirandais and Hamdi shut up and didn't say anything. Now he went back to the kingdom. I, you know, pick your pick your poison there, uh, but you know they were very early in the ball game, and that that I, I always taught my my class that was the difference between those two. They both got Mirandized. Uh, they both were not in the right place they needed to be vis a vis America, and Hamdi they had to let him go uh, once they discovered he was born in Louisiana, and but they flew his they flew him right to the KSA. And uh, Walker Lynn, you know, got his uh, had his court case. Interesting. Yeah. So, so Greg. Oh, Tommy Franks, the Tommy Franks one. Um, I don't remember exactly what day they were on, but he came on early with uh, Wayne Newton and Drew Carey and the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders for a USO trip. And so I always love wow. Drew Carey and, and Wayne Newton for coming out there. They actually went to Rhino and, and, and saw them out. I mean, that's American largesse right there, but I don't think that's why Tommy Franks came on the ship. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. It's always, yeah. But it was a, it was it's a USO trip. And then he wanted okay. to, 
And then, you know, the combat. Did he meet Lynn? Did out. he go see Lynn? Do you know that? I, I don't know if he did or not because he had his own, his own. I mean, he's a stratospheric yeah. level at that stage of the game. I'm just, you yeah. know, mumpy mumps. <laughs> if well, I would have been his legal advisor, I would have said no. Yeah. <laughs> I was not his, I was not his legal advisor. So. Now, you know, looking back with 20 years of hindsight uh, and uh, actually teaching the subject, you know, and, and I want to get kind of Mick and Greg's perspective on this. How have our thoughts changed about this tension between the civilian courts and, and treating people as enemy combatants? It was an argument that seemed insolvable at the time. But 20 years have shown us Gitmo has been just a mess. We've still got people that we can't release. They can't be tried in courts, in part because of the treatment. These small, you know, seemingly small issues of, of abuse or trophy photos or things like that completely pollute a, a civilian trial and, and prevent any sort of conviction. But that also means that we don't have closure in the public sphere on a lot of these uh, crimes. Whether you see the acts of violence by non-state actors as acts of war or as crimes, that argument is still with us, even though we've left Afghanistan. How, how do you sum it up for your students who weren't alive to to remember those arguments happening, Mick? Well, I, I, I do teach it uh, in my class. and. To me, from the, the senior level of the American government, who I wasn't super happy with certain ones right below the top, they wanted to play, you know, this is a whole new game. This is a whole new way of doing things and, and kid gloves are off and all this other stuff. We strayed from the law of war that we are one of the principal architects of. We were the first people to have, I mean, to codify humanity on the battlefield. George Washington gave the Hessians and the British quarter. He said, we are not going to treat them like they treat our guys. We're not going to put them on brigs in New York Harbor and, and just throw them off when they die. We will treat them well. That was from the start of our government. We were big. Uh, we were large at the table at Geneva in 49. Not quite as much as 77, but we, that's our history and that's our legacy to me. One of the very large ones besides the freedom and, and those sort of things. We strayed from that because somehow these guys were different. And in war, it's always like, hey, you know, you don't want to you know, give advantages. But it was a tough fit for the, the uh, KSMs to, all right, how are we going to rack these guys up and charge them? These other knuckleheads and all the stuff that went on with Gitmo, to me, we strayed from where we, we should have gone. I think it's exemplified by Johnny Walker Lynn only because he was American. Only because we had an FBI agent, only because there was a lot of visibility on this first one, did we say we're not going to play these reindeer games. He's not a little brown man from KSA or Kuwait or whoever it is. He's an American, and we've got rights that, that have to go with it. These other guys, we strayed even further with them. And, and it's going to be a black mark on us, just like our treatment of Japanese nationals uh, uh, after Kiramatsu. It's we, we learn these in retrospect and, and we try and hold the line when we can. And there's some people that valiantly held the line somewhere along the line, be it the agency, be it DOD, be it whoever, you know, state. We, we, we needed more, especially early on in the game. When the, when the blood is hot, 
the the passions are flowing. You've got to have legal advisors who say, no, that's not who we are. This is who we are. And the reason we've got the result, the good result, some would say, I mean, if Walker Lynn gets caught 10 years later, maybe he gets five years for material support, but maybe he's smarter and, and, and coughs up some, some names or something like that. I, I don't know what was on the, was, I was never privy to what was on the offer for him. Um, but I do know, like I said, first on just going in first, he was, he was going to get major time no matter what, because he went first and, and people wanted a head on a post. They didn't care what it was. It didn't help him that, you know, he's a, he's a rich kid from San Francisco, you know, Marin County, whatever it is that probably didn't help him in a lot in a large part of America that, uh, you know, image that people would have. And yeah, so he, he's a bit of a tragic uh, figure. I could see where, you know, Greg has, you know, his, his takes on that and, and God, he's spent four years doing it. Uh, but I think about Johnny Walker shit a couple times a year, easy. But um, I just hope he gets his life back after, you know, spending half of it now behind bars and hopefully he can, you know, do something. And, and uh, what do you, what do you think happened to him in jail though? Cause you know, there was that interview with NBC news where he almost sort of praised Islamic state and what they were doing. Yeah. It's, um, it's a local reporter in LA who works yeah. the LA affiliate. I, I tried to unpack that. It's very difficult. It was a leak then from the, uh, uh, National Counterterrorism Center as well. So what happens to him in that prison, which is this kind of basically this terrorist unit inside Terre Haute Federal Prison, who knows? Um, and what he's actually thinking now, I mean, you know, he's, he's very closely watched, but it's it's hard to, but that in a way, what it, that's separate from what he was back then. And Nick, um, I couldn't agree with you more on the uh, the, the legal questions. And it's, it's uh because for me, it's like, whatever happens with the Camp Rhino or what, it's like, fundamentally for me, it's like when you have the attorney general publicly vilifying this, this, this detainee and, and, and essentially accusing him of treason and murder, um, that's, that's not, that's, of course, it's going to have a massive impact on, on, on how he's treated and the judicial system is going to warp the, the notions of justice and, and, I totally, I, I'm of a view that these almost exclusively could have been done through the legal system, including KSM. Um, and uh, because then it would show us for who we, the best side of who we are. And certainly with John Walker Lynn, really like, and if there was abuse by soldiers along the way, investigate that and prosecute. It doesn't mean that he couldn't have been convicted for what he for what he did, which I agree with you, if it was 10 years later, it would have been probably seven, eight years with some kind of material support. But, um, but it's, and I think we've betrayed, you know, who we, the better part of who we, of, 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 of our system um, by, by straying from these, these morals. And, uh, and I, I think that all of them really could have been tried in the legal, including, including bin Laden, frankly, and including KSM. Even with the interrogation, the CIA we still could have constructed the case. I mean, these guys have admitted it, and um, and we elevated them into something that they're not. Which is certainly with John Walker Lynn, he becomes his boogeyman. He's just this kid. KSM's a thug. We try lots of really bad people, 
um, and convict them and aren't afraid of them? Why give them this 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 platform and elevate them into into some kind of existential enemy when they were anything, in my view, anything but? David, did you have any final thoughts on this? Looking back at at you know, this is so early in the story, and so much has happened since. Uh, to put it mildly. Uh, how do you think the the Lynn story shaped what what came over the next twenty years in terms of how we think about the perpetrators of nine eleven, but all of those that that really came along since and and were really birthed out of that violence? Yeah, that's a difficult one. I, you know, when I was in Iraq and we detained these guys, uh, each one was different. Each one, like Greg said, some of them were just thugs. They were just enamored by becoming part of the mafia, so to speak. Uh, we, we captured this uh, 19-year-old who had acquired two wives. One was 16, the other was 12. The 12 was already married to someone else, but he, uh, through threat of coercion, had gotten her divorce and to be his wife. And this guy was planning IDs, apparently had killed Marines, um, but I don't think there's any religious motivation on this guy's part. However, like I mentioned previously with the, the kids shooting the RPG at the post that we shot, um, those guys were definitely brainwashed into this, this sort of Islamic jihad. Um, so no store, no two people are exactly the same. And I think we need to go back and understand what the, why these people get caught up in, in, in this, what's missing from their lives, what, you know, because prevention is sort of the key, I think, going forward, as opposed to just whacking HVTs around the world. We're, you know, we're, it's like chasing our tail, I think. And that's what I wanted to ask uh, Mick about, like, what is he, what sort of state of mind does he think Lind is in at the moment? Did he really advocate for ISIS uh, and that sort of thing? Because I think that that's one aspect of it that would be interesting to know and, and learn. And I think Greg Greg obviously would like to know because, you know, it's it, Lind is still kind of a mystery. I don't know, to be honest with you, David. Uh, I, I would cede the ground to Greg there. I had heard, I mean, when I when I was kind of just listening to where Walker knows, I thought he was in Victorville for the vast stint of his, uh, of his stay. And he only went to Terre Haute maybe after some somebody was threatening him or that somebody decided they were in a bad mood and wanted to move him over to Terre Haute. But I thought he was in Victorville the, almost the whole time. And I, I was quite frankly surprised I, as long as he made it the first couple of years. And I said, okay, he's probably going to make it, but I mean, that, that could still be a pretty rough place. So I, I, I hope he didn't get radicalized, but you could see hell it happened in a, in Iraq. That was, we, we created a, you know, terrorist camps inside of Abu Ghraib and some other places. So, uh, you know, if they didn't have rehabilitation programs and we probably don't in, in our prisons, like they do in some of the other Middle Eastern countries that hopefully I've heard can work if you do them correctly, not torture, but, you know, proper way of, uh, de-radicalizing. I hope, I hope he's not like that, but, um, Hey, he's, he's an American, he's an American and he's, he's done his time. He, he paid his, he did his nickel times four. So, uh, he, um, he can do it. I just hope, but I think Greg and, and John, right. He's being watched. Uh, my guess is that, being, that. Yeah. He's being watched. And he was in that. I think he was, he was in Terre Haute for quite a while. 
Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the lawyers advocated for, I mean, they preferred that it's this kind of weird prison within a prison, which has, you know, where prisoners have even fewer rights than they would in a normal prison population. Um, at the same time, they're protected. And, you know, he was one of the people who sued for, um, to, for the right to have prayer, a public, uh, a gathering of, of prisoners to pray and one. And, uh, so, but what his views, I mean, I think there was several times in the course of making this, I was in touch with his family and his lawyers and indirectly and with people who he'd been detained with, who'd come out of Terre Haute prison. And it looked at various points, like he might want to tell a story. I think he never did. And so far as I know, has not yet. What he really thinks now, I'm not sure the lawyers or the family really want to get out because they don't want to expose him because they're afraid that somebody might come after him. But I think it's hard to know what he actually thinks. And if he if he has become more radicalized, they certainly don't want to publicize that. Interesting. Still a mystery. <laughs> still a mystery all these years later. Well, that, that that's something that I was half joking when we started was that Lind is like a Rorschach test for what people bring to the table at the yeah. time. I think it's really important, right? That we left Afghanistan. It ended in, in such an ignominious way. It, everyone's exhausted talking about this. No, you know, America as a country, I think doesn't want to look back and remember, or conversely, people have this, fantasy memory like that we were all somehow unified on you know maybe on you know 912 but on 913 we were already arguing about all of these deep deep issues about the use of force about how to treat detainees about America's place in the world our, you know owning whatever our own responsibility was for our foreign policies and our military policy that led up to Afghanistan all of that and i think it's very easy for americans to not think about it and I think if we serve any purpose here at Real Clear Defense, you know, and I think this film does an excellent job of reminding us, you capture really well at the time, you know, the, you know, America had been wounded. Its ire was up. We were, we were focusing our anger on, on this individual. Just as a final thought, what sort of a Rorschach test do you think Lynn serves for us today in this, in this present moment? Uh, where we've we've left Afghanistan and, and looking back on 20 years of war? Well, I think it's a way of wondering what it was all about, particularly, I mean, he was with the Taliban and they're now in power. <laughs> so in the long run, he was on the winning side in that conflict, which is kind of hard to imagine. But I think it's, when I look at, back at his story and wondering what it means now, it does make me just, ask what have we just been through and i don't think we still have come to answer that question for ourselves how has this last 20 years changed us our view of ourselves our view of our democracy our view of the other what the enemy is we have been affected by this in ways i still think we are we are struggling to understand and what you guys do and what i hope to do in this film is like Let's just kind of ask these questions because there's no right or wrong answer. And it's not political. It's just we've been through this traumatic 20 years. What's it mean? You know, what's it mean? And here's a story that I tried to tell that was 
I try to make it an interesting, engaging war movie, but also ask these questions about hopefully people will reflect on on their own trajectory and how their own beliefs have, have evolved and shifted over over these past two decades. Mick, last thoughts. I guess the only thing I would say was, you know, on a wider angle, like late Colin Powell did after Vietnam and they did a hard look and they said, okay, we're not doing that again. And and we didn't for 40 years, but can we take a look now and, and truly, you know, both administ- both parties were in charge during this, these things and both parties had uh, in Congress and, and everything else. Can we come together and, and, truly say, okay, this is where the problem, it was a couple of years after Vietnam until this, you know, it was actually the early eighties when they really started to dissect what happened. I hope we don't take that long, but we need to do that as a nation. And I hope we can. Well, on that note, we will have to end it there for today. The film is Detainee 001 available now on Showtime. I recommend that our listeners check it out. Greg Barker, Mick Wagner, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thanks a lot, John. Appreciate it. You and and to David. Appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen. 